if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Titus. It, we are going to not be in Titus at the beginning of this. I have a lot of passages we're actually going to go to first uh, to kind of set the tone uh, before we get to Titus chapter 3. And um, if you are fairly new with us, uh, we do two different scripture readings for our, our mornings. And usually we start with the, a Genesis passage, an Old Testament passage, and then a New Testament passage. But because of the, the order of service today with baptism at the front end of things, that's why we did the New Testament for the Old Testament. So just so we are all on the same page and you understand that it was a weird transition from Genesis 30 to what I'm going to talk about now. So we're, we're all okay now. It's out in the open, and we feel better about ourselves. Okay, well, we are going to talk about a most neglected practice, a most neglected practice. And I want to start with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. If anyone does not obey what we, ha what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed." Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, holding, uh, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made wreck, uh, shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is a sampling from the New Testament of passages, passages that are dealing with disciplinary action inside of the church. In Matthew 18, that is a place where Jesus is, is teaching, initiating the idea of discipline in the church. He is setting up a standard of practice for church disciplinary action. And he gives us kind of four steps there to understand 
how church discipline should work. And so if you're unfamiliar with Matthew 18, here's just kind of a a very general outline of what you see there. We have Jesus talking about going one-on-one with someone if if there's an offense that is there. And then if that doesn't work, if there's not restoration and repentance, then it moves to two or three with that one person. So these, these, these two steps are kind of private uh, conversations that are being had, and then it moves into, if there is no repentance, if there is no restoration, into a public issue with the church. And so he says to bring it to the church, make it public to the congregation. And if that still doesn't bring about repentance, if that still doesn't bring about restoration, then step four, and that is to put the person out of the church. And this practice of discipline, it was definitely not lost on the Apostle Paul because of those other passages which I read to you were all from the Apostle Paul and from several different places that he, uh, different churches that he was writing to in different contexts. So it is not something, whenever we talk about church discipline or talk about disciplinary action, it is not just, well, uh, one specific context in the New Testament. No, it, it is quite vast. It is quite broad. And we see and hear Paul talk about disciplinary action needed in churches. Discipline is not a topic that people like to listen to or pastors like to talk about. And so, again, we're all uncomfortable, and we all understand that this is emotionally painful when we talk about discipline. Whether that's discipline in the church or discipline in the home, we are not usually um, really excited to, to get into what discipline is. But notice, as you read the New Testament, you will find that the idea of discipline is connected throughout the New Testament. It is not just landing in one spot, but it covers really the entirety of the New Testament. Now, for whatever reason, in my 38 years of existence so far, I have not witnessed a church that I have been a part of get to the third step in Matthew 18. I have not seen them get to the fourth step either of putting someone out of the church. Now, we here are in a place where we are moving in this direction. I've been a part of churches where we have, uh, there has been one-on-one conversations, been two-on-three conversations, and maybe you would be tempted to think that, well, after those conversations that the, the sin issue was resolved, well, you would be mistaken, that wasn't usually the case. Usually what would happen is either the person would leave, they'd go somewhere else, or it never actually got to step three or step four. Now, I've only been part of Baptist churches my entire life. A couple different denominations, or actually independent church versus Southern Baptist church. And so the, the question that I've had is, has this always been the case in Baptist history? Has this been the case in Baptist history, or is it just my history in which I have to go on, my experience to go on, of what I've witnessed, what I've not witnessed? Well, Daniel Aiken, author and president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, he has written this. He says, for Baptists, this is striking when you consider that we have historically viewed church discipline as an essential mark the third mark of the church, right alongside the word rightly preached and the ordinances properly administered, Al Mohler noted, uh, notes, 
that a, dis- a disciplined church is an essential mark of the church goes back at least to the um, Belgic um, Confession of 1561, and one can also find roots of this missing jewel of church life in the earliest Anabaptist Confession of the Schlittenheim Confession of 1527 and its Article 2 on the ban. Aiken goes on, And yet, none of Southern Baptist's most recent confessions, the Baptist Faith and Message of 1925, 1963, or 2000, has a statement on this biblical teaching. Greg Wills notes that church discipline began to wane in Southern Baptist life in the 1870s and rapidly decreased thereafter. And by the 1930s, it was quite rare Most reported exclusions were merely in the cleaning up of church roles of names of members long inactive and forgotten. Of course, today we seldom do even this. Even those who have expired and left this world for the world to come find it difficult, if not impossible, to have their names removed from the church role. Aiken goes on to say, We have lost our theological nerve. The courage to confront as well as comfort, to admonish as well as exhort, out of fear of offending, we have slunk away into the false security of silence. An American Baptist pastor named John L. Dagg, he said this, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Now, Jesus tells the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, which you're probably very familiar with, Revelation and Revelation 3, and as Jesus is, is talking to the churches that are there in this one church, Laodicea, he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So obviously, Jesus is for discipline, right? Because if he wasn't, then why did he give us Matthew 18? Discipline is an essential mark of a healthy church. Essential mark of a healthy church. It is foundational to the healthy witness of the church into the community in which it serves. This reference here of Revelation 3. You also know, if you're familiar with that passage, that Jesus talks about this church. And if they are unwilling to repent, if they are not going to turn from their ways, what will Jesus do with them? He will spew them or spit them or vomit them out of his mouth. Discipline is meant to bring about repentance, which is to bring about restoration. Discipline brings accountability. If there is no accountability, then what is the purpose of grouping together? What is the purpose of the gathering of the church? Well, you might say, well, it's to worship God and to encourage one another And I would argue that you can do neither of those two if you are unwilling to include accountability. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23, he says, But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So how do true worshipers worship God? Well, Spirit and truth, meaning that there is more than just a a feeling of emotion or a feeling of connection that you have with God, but real worship must include the truth of God. 
The truth that we have from Scripture tells us that He is a God of order. He is a God of rules. He is a God of laws. He is a God of organization. And that He has established for us the church and what the church should be and what should happen inside of the church. And so it's under His order of operation that we have been given these these outlines, these, uh, these definitions of what does it mean to be a body. And so for us to disregard these things would be to disregard right worship of God. So, what does all of this have to do with Titus 3? Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15 specifically. Now, if you haven't been with us, we have been walking through the book of Titus, and this is our last sermon on the book of Titus. And so what does church discipline have to do with the end of Titus? Well, Paul is ending his letter to Titus, this one that he's left there on the island of Crete to um, accomplish some things that were left undone because Paul had to leave But he's given instruction to Titus to carry out these things. And so he gives him some final instructions here in verses 8 through 15. And really how he should deal with certain individuals in the churches of Crete. And these certain individuals on the island of Crete in these specific churches that are creating division in these churches. He's going to tell Titus to discipline these individuals. And he's going to reveal a few things to us as what this should look like and what this uh, should, should model after. So let's look at this together. Look at verse 8 of Titus 3. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send uh, Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing." And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, Paul has given a lot of very precise instruction through the book of Titus. He has talked about leadership in the local church. He has talked about the different roles in which people have inside of the church and the demographics of the church. He has encouraged godly behavior and self-control across the board from the top to the bottom in the church. Then in chapter 3, he gives the foundation of faith and the foundation for why these things should be in the local church. And what is that foundation? It is the amazing grace of of God that has been richly, as he says, poured out on us. Now in verse 8, here in chapter 3, he wants Titus to insist upon some things, to encourage strongly, if you will, about some things. Now if you look at verse 8, this idea of insisting means to speak confidently about, 
to stress to the people. So what is it that Paul wants Titus to insist upon or, or speak confidently about? Well, it, it's, again, connected to all these other things that we've already talked about, we've already seen. But specifically here, he says, believers should be devoting themselves to good works. Insist upon that. Now, he has already given some definition as to what good works are, and we can go, you can go back into chapter 2, and you can see as he gives different demographics in the church, this is what they should be doing, this is what it should look like. Also, in the first part of chapter 3, he gives definition to what good works is. He has also given some definition as to what bad works are, as you, again, examine what the, the role of elders are in the church versus what these other roles in chapter 2 are. But also in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, Paul makes a comparison there, as we've talked about uh, consistently through our teaching on Titus. In verses 10 through 16, chapter 1, he talks about Cretans and Christians. He doesn't use the word Christians, but he's referring to the believers of these churches. And he makes this comparison throughout this book, comparing the Cretan and the Christian. Now, he also does this in chapter 3, verse 3, and he's going to do it again in verses 9 through 11. And so here's, here's some other things that he insists upon. So uh, Paul <coughs> excuse me, also draws, draws a very defined line throughout this letter about who should be expected to do good works. If you look there in verse 8, he connects the idea of doing good works to who? Those who have believed in God. So the expectation that is there is those that have believed in God should be doing good works, but this is not some sort of generic belief in God as most Americans would have. Well, yeah, I believe in God. It's more specific than that because of what Paul has already established through this book and what we also know from other, other writings of Paul. Paul's belief that he is talking about is specifically to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is God. That is who he is talking about. So if there is anyone that is in denial of who Jesus is, if they do not believe in Jesus to be the Son of God, to be God in the flesh, then Paul would say they are not believers in God. They reject him. Jesus must be trusted, must be believed in order for there to be salvation. If there is not belief or trust in Jesus, there is no salvation. So those that have believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they should and will be about good works. Which, again, uh, they are defined for us in this letter of what good deeds are. What does good deeds look like? What are good works? And these good deeds, they follow salvation. They do not come as a prerequisite to salvation. And this is really important to understand. We do not do good works so that we are saved. We do good works because we are saved. We have been changed. We have been brought out from being a Cretan into a Christian. And so now as a Christian, I do good deeds. I do good works. And this is what, what Paul has been presenting to us here in Titus. And as Paul also writes in other places, this is what it looks like. And we know that good works do not come as a prerequisite to salvation because it's already been established for us in Scripture that all of our works before being regenerated are as filth to God. So how would it even be possible for you to do anything good when all you could do is bad? And this is why you, I, need Jesus Christ, because of his perfection and his work. 
So believers should do good things. We should do good works. And then Paul makes a transition here in verses 9 through 11. Paul now is going to be very direct in dealing with people in these churches that he's started off in back in chapter 1 dealing with and the, probably the reason why this letter was even written. He's going to be very direct in dealing with these people that are divisive and are creating disunity in these local bodies of churches. Now mainly, who he is identifying are false teachers in these churches. And what would Paul deem as being foolish controversies of the law? What would be these things which Paul is going to deal with and say, these are people that you should have nothing more to do with? Well, we, we learn from Titus that it, it would be arguing that justification comes from something other than grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what was happening and why whenever Paul was writing this to Titus, to these people in Crete, from what Paul has been describing to be part of the problem here in Crete is, is this group that uh, we would know as the Judaizers. Now, what they wanted, they wanted to argue that the law of Moses must be kept in order for someone to actually be a Christian or for somebody to be saved. So to put it into kind of a simple uh, equation of things, you could say that they were teaching Jesus plus law equals salvation. Jesus plus law equals salvation. This is what they taught. And so Paul writes this and writes many other letters to address this kind of teaching. Now this was taught broadly uh, across the churches that Paul was dealing with, and it's also taught broadly across our, our current culture, and we see this with cults teaching this. We also see this with some so-called Baptist churches teaching a very, very similar thing. Now, what Paul is confronting in these verses is the doctrinal and moral integrity of these churches of Crete. If you look at verse 9, he says, Foolish controversies and genealogies... These are things that Paul repeats also to Timothy, as he writes in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. These are the same things that were happening all over the place. And so, again, it's not just specifically to the island of Crete or just first century time, but this is also for our time as well. People haven't changed. Things have changed. Technologies have changed, but people have not and so these same things were, were happening all over the place. They were really universal threats to doctrinal integrity and moral integrity of the churches. And so Paul writes this to Titus, that he would address these kinds of things. These things must be avoided. They must be stopped in order for the church to be healthy and for the church to display a healthy display of the gospel. Now, he calls those things unprofitable and worthless. Now, that word Worthless means useless or devoid of truth. These, these things, they're, they're worthless. They're, they ignore truth. They, they set truth to the side. James says in James 1.26, If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There's that word. It's void of truth. Now, this word that's used here by James, it describes a religion that is devoid of truth. It's devoid of, of what is true from God. 
Now, if you can't control your tongue or your words, then your religion is devoid of truth. So this is a pretty serious thing that Paul is addressing, that Paul is talking about, that we need to have a, a religion that is worth something, that is filled with truth. Now, I think a great question to ask ourselves as we start to engage each other in conversations about religious things, and that could be a whole broad scope of things that we, we bring into the church or about the church. I think a great question to ask ourselves as we start to talk to each other about certain things or really anything is, does this contribute to godliness? Does what I'm bringing up, maybe it's controversies or maybe it's genealogies or maybe it's X, Y, and Z, does this topic contribute to godliness, my own personal godliness and to the godliness of the person I'm engaging or to the church? I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Or is this conversation that you're going to have or this topic that you're going to bring up, is it only going to just lead to quarrels and dissensions? Now, there are some very legitimate things in which we should quarrel over. There are some very legitimate things in which we should be divisive over. Paul has already established for us in this letter what some of those things are, such as justification by grace alone. Justification by grace alone is, is something that we should go to the mat on, that we should go to war over. It is something that is so important to us. It has, has been so important to really all of evangelicalism since the Reformation. This is no small thing to quibble over. It is the bedrock of our belief. Understanding the grace of God is the bedrock of belief. So Paul introduces this group again to us, these that are, are bringing about foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels, and that what they're doing, it's unprofitable, it's not helpful, it's devoid of truth. And then look at verse 10. He says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Division. Division. This word is only used one time in the New Testament. Here it is. One time. It is where we get our word for heretic. A heretic is a person that follows false doctrine. Now, this word, heretic, it gets thrown around a lot uh, in our culture today, especially online if you follow any kind of religious blogs or vlogs or anything that ends with og. Um, people hurl this around all the time and, and, and claim this about pastors or denominations or individuals, and, and they throw around this word heretic all the time. And whenever you think about the word and the origins of the word and what that means, well, of course you can call someone a heretic because who on this planet currently has perfect doctrine? Who, who has a perfect understanding of God and of the Bible? And if you raise your hand and say you know someone, you don't. You don't know anyone. Your pastor doesn't. You don't. Nobody that you've ever met physically does. 
So all of us could be deemed as heretics because all of us have some sort of heretical thing in our understanding of God or of the Bible. And those things should be talked about. They should be worked through. They should be uh, uh, processed. And so in a broad sense, everyone could be called a heretic. And so they, they wouldn't be wrong to say those things. But in another sense of how the word is used and how the word is used as a, a condemning thing, it should not be thrown around flippantly. There are certain heretical things that are damnable things, such as denying that Jesus is divine, that he is the Son of God, and he is God, and not just simply an angel. There are some groups and some that would teach that Jesus is, well, just Michael the archangel. He just goes by a different name. Or that Jesus is not really the Son of God, or he's lesser than in some sense. Also, what we see here from Paul is if someone is promoting a salvation that comes in some other means, in some other way, such as Jesus plus law equals salvation, like the Judaizers, that these would fall into this category of damnable doctrines. So this is a serious thing which Paul is dealing with, and these people in these churches that are creating such a disunity. Now Paul goes on in verse 10 to say that these people, they need to be warned, they need to be admonished. This warning is likely done through Matthew 18, that process that we have seen earlier, which eventually leads to, again, step three, into a public warning of the individual. If there is not repentance in the first two private interactions with this person, then they are to be brought to the church. Now, Paul says to give them two warnings, and then what? Have nothing more to do with them. Now, this phrase is translated as reject in the King James or the NASB translation, which means to avoid them or refuse them. This is where the idea of excommunication comes from. Have you heard that word? Excommunication? Which would mean that a person would not be welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. They have been excommunicated They are not allowed to take part of communion if a person had been brought before the church publicly under church disciplinary disciplinary action. So they've got to step three. Into step four, they would not be allowed to partake of the elements of communion. This has gotten lost on our practice as Baptists. We live in a time where there are There are just so many options for churches. There are so many options for people here in this country anyways. And people are far more capable of traveling and far more affluent than ever in history. And so what can they do? Well, they can just jump from one church to another church, even though this one church is holding them accountable to their actions, to their sinful lifestyle. And they can just go somewhere else where no one knows anything different. This would not happen in the first century. This would not happen on Crete. And it also, it did not happen in just 100 years ago. People were actually being held accountable publicly for the choices that they had made or the divisions in which they were creating. Now today, people are resistant to the idea of church discipline because they think that it is not very loving or Christ-like to do such a thing. And some might even say it is evil. Ephesians, 4, Ephesians 6, 4 says... 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul's take on discipline is that it's a very loving thing, just as a father would do. It's a very caring thing that he would do and the church should do. And we've seen this through the other text which I read to you this morning. Now, an argument that is brought up about church discipline is, well, doesn't Jesus say that we shouldn't judge each other? And don't we all have sin that is in our lives? Well, let me answer both of those. First thing, well, he, he did say, do not judge lest you be judged. Yes, uh, that's Matthew 7, 1. But you cannot deny all of the other passages that command us to judge those inside of the church with righteous judgment. If he didn't want us to judge each other inside of the church, then why in the world would he give us a process for doing such a thing? That would make no sense. The second thing, second argument that is there, well, yes, we all have sin. Of, Of course, yes, we do. Well, if you denied that, if you said, no, I, I don't have sin, then, well, First John would say that you're a liar. So, yes, we all have sin in our life. Yes, all of us have something that we are wrestling with, and maybe some things we don't even know that we're wrestling with. They're just blind spots to us. So the question should be, what constitutes disciplinary action in the church? Well, this is where I think Titus is very helpful because Paul gives us four things here of why and when disciplinary action should be taken. The first thing he says, he says it is because it's divisive and damaging. It's divisive and damaging to the body. He's pointed out in chapter 1 and also now here in chapter 3, if the sin is damaging to the body in some way like heretical teaching or slander or gossip, drunkenness, lying, rebellion, theft, etc., 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 the damage that can be done by some sins will have a greater impact upon the whole than maybe others would. But all sin will have an impact at some point to the health of the church. So the sin in which you you don't want to talk about or you don't want to confess or you don't want anybody to find out about, even that one that doesn't seem to be affecting anybody yet, it will. And so Paul says these that are divisive and damaging and are now being public and damaging the whole at a greater effect, these are ones that need dealt with. The second thing that Paul says is that it's public. It's public. These false teachers were not being secretive. They were not having uh, just secretive meetings. No, I, I don't think that was happening. And it's broadly happening across the island of Crete. These Judaizers, again, were not very shy. And Paul is speaking of very specific people. And he doesn't mention them by name here, but he does in other places mention people specifically. And I read one of those even this morning. And so a sin or sins that have become public to the church or to the community even, they need dealt with. Public, public does not have to mean that the person has stood up in front of the church and has said, yes, I'm doing this sinful thing. That is not necessarily what public has to mean. It could mean that. 
But what public can mean is that the word is out. People know. People are talking. People in the church have heard. People outside of the church have heard. Your name is in the, the blotter. It's your pictures in the post office. It's that kind of thing. The word is out. People know. It's public. So number one, it's divisive. It's damaging. Two, it's public. Three, it's habitual. It's habitual. When we become aware of sin in a brother or a sister's life, we need to first go to them and talk to them about what's happening. Because maybe we just don't understand. Maybe there's something that we're, we're seeing something to be sin, but it's really not. And so that's why we don't go just public with everything, because we should have a conversation. So we should talk about what's happening. And then through that conversation, we ask probing questions to discover is this a sinful thing? Do you realize that's a sinful thing? Why do I perceive that to be a sinful thing? And we ask questions to get to the point of understanding are also, are there patterns of behavior that are here? Again, all sin can have an impact. All sin will have an impact on the church. But especially unchecked Habitual, sinful behavior will have more of an impact on the life of the church and its integrity to the community. If sinful lifestyles and behaviors are allowed to persist and go unchallenged, then the church will end up having zero influence on the culture around it. Their integrity is lost. And they have become irrelevant. The church will become marginalized, and people will, will scoff and laugh at the church. Why has the church become so insignificant for society? Why has the church, in some people's eyes, been seen as void, as irrelevant? I believe it's connected to this idea of discipline. Because of the undisciplined church, she has lost her integrity. She has lost her voice in society. And by allowing sin to persist inside, people laugh, people scoff, people mock, and people walk away. The fourth thing Paul gives us here, I think, out of this passage is that it lacks repentance. As he says here, you've warned them once, you've warned them twice, that there's nothing that changes. So when a sin is confronted, there should be repentance. In a Christian's life, when a sin is presented to you as a sinful thing, your response as a Christian should be to run from the sin. When Paul says in verse 10 that they should be warned once and then twice, he is talking about exercising patience with these people, offering grace to these people, walking alongside these people. But also notice here that our patience is not infinite. And God's patience with you, sinner, is not infinite. There is a time of judgment. In verse 11, he tells Titus why he should reject these people and have nothing more to do with them. Look at verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Their self-condemnation is shown by what? Their lack of repentance. That word warped, it means perverted or twisted or corrupt. 
And I think this connects us back into chapter 1, verse 12, as he talks about Cretans. Cretans are what? Always liars, evil beasts, lazy glutton. Their nature. Their nature is twisted. Their minds are twisted. Their hearts are corrupted. They are perverted. They will not listen to the warnings that are given to them, and they will not repent because they don't want to. And often... When you confront someone in their sin, if you've ever had to do this or you have done this, they usually don't view their sin as sin, do they? Usually, they write it off and say, well, surely not. Surely that's not the case for me. Or they say things like, well, I'm not as bad as, or I, you know, my, my friend does this. And that's all just deflection from the truth. They sometimes use Scripture to justify their behavior. Others try to spiritualize the the situation by saying things like, well, the Spirit led me to, or, well, I, I had this sign from God, and I did. I've heard people say, people say to my face that they are, they are living in sin, and they say this to me, yeah, I know it's sin, but I've never been happier in my life. What? And these are people that are claiming to be Christians. Yeah, I know that's a sinful thing. I know that's sin, but I've never been happier. This is unrepentant, and it's unacceptable. Since this person will not repent, it must be made known to the person that this is a problem and that this person should be brought publicly to the church. And I think this is the third step of Matthew 18. And I think this is what Paul is dealing with here with Titus, of having nothing more to do with them, of rejecting them. And this is, again, a public thing that's happening. This is not just, just pushing them out the door quietly so nobody knows. The purpose of discipline is that everyone learns. This third step that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, this is the purpose of doing that, is to bring about restoration through repentance. If there is repentance, if there is repentance in any of the processes of 1, 2, or 3 of Matthew 18, then then the process of discipline stops and restoration then begins to take over. So if it's a one-on-one conversation, there's repentance, then restoration starts to happen. Or if it's step 2, or step 3, or even after step 4, we know this from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as Paul deals with a specific individual being put out of the church and then he tells him 2 Corinthians to bring him back into the church because there is repentance. This is all done publicly. Publicly. If it gets to step three, into step four, this is public. It's not private any longer. Now Christians' lives should be lived in repentance. And they should, and they will respond in repentance. And I I think we see this taught through the Scriptures, that the Christian will respond eventually with turning from sin and embracing Christ. So a person who is unrepentant is saying, with their unrepentance, that they disregard the local church's understanding of sin. 
And so this is the process. Whenever the person is dealt with one-on-one, then two or three-on-one, there's, there's this private conversation about, we think this is sin, I think this is a wrong thing that you're doing, and you need to, you need to be confronted on this issue. Let me show you scriptures that I, I think are, are leading us to understand this. And then the situation is brought to the church, and the church is then collectively saying, yes, we agree that is a sinful lifestyle, that is a sinful thing to do. And so for the person to be resistant to the church is to say, I don't care what you people think. And I don't care what the Bible says. This is the problem. And this is why it's a public issue. If there's no repentance, what should happen? Paul says to remove them. Put them out of the church, as Jesus says. So therefore, removing them from membership of the local church is saying publicly that the local church can no longer can no longer affirm that person's faith. Why? Because there is no repentance. Not that the person is not a Christian, because we don't really know that, because we don't really know the heart, but it sure doesn't seem like the person's acting like one. That, that we can't affirm the faith that you claim, because the faith that you claim would bring about repentance, and there is no repentance. So to review these four things that I think Paul's teaching here in Titus 3, one, if the sin is divisive and damaging, and this is broadly speaking, if it is made public, if it is habitual, if it lacks repentance, I think these are the four things that we then bring, that we start this process with people and then finally bring it to the church. Now, when sin is discovered in your life, you should move quickly upon that. You should move quickly to kill that sin. And the longer you allow it to fester, and the longer that you allow it to grow, the harder it will be to kill it. One of my favorite quotes is by John Owen. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is so true. So your personal response to sin should be one of action, not complacency. Not say, well, that's just who I am. That's just how I feel. That's just what I, what I do. That's the problem. That's the problem. You need the gospel. You need Christ. You need the grace of God to come in and change your heart, change your mind, so that you would respond differently to the sinful behavior that you currently have. And we need each other to hold us accountable and responsible to that. And so, and so, this should be our response as a church, as a church towards sinful behavior. We should move quickly with sin and dealing with sin. Now, grace obviously should be extended. Paul says that. Jesus says that. There should be patience practiced. But... If there is no movement toward repentance, there must be action taken. But why do we not follow this pattern? Why do we not follow these directives that have been given to us in Scripture? Why is it so hard for church members and church leaders to remove people from its rosters who fit into these categories? Author and historian Victor Masters, would point to the idea of sentimentality. He says, sentimentality is an enemy of church discipline. 
Sentimentality is the love of man divorced from love of truth. It cloaks a big lot of hypocrisy and moral decay. Why don't we want to remove people from membership or execute church discipline? Well, you know, they're my cousin, or, you know, it's my brother, or it's my aunt, or it's an old friend of mine, or this person's been a member here for decades, even though they haven't attended for decades. None of those relationships or reasons are valid reasons of not dealing with the person's sinful behaviors. It would be an unloving thing for you to do. Confronting sin is not something that should be taken lightly. It's not something that should be taken flippantly. It should not be taken as an optional thing for Christians to do. It is an essential part of what a healthy church is, or as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, is a true church. He says, there is no purpose in having a basis or a confession of faith unless it is applied. So we must assert the element of discipline as being essential to the true life of the church. And what calls itself a church which does not believe in discipline and does not use it and apply it is therefore not a true church. Now let me make this as, as clear as I possibly can. And even as I say that, it's like it probably won't be clear. So I'll do my best. If we, we collectively, if we do not hold our people to a standard of faith such as what we believe or a, a statement of faith, and we do not hold our people to a standard of practice such as our church covenant, then there is no reason to have either of them. And what will eventually happen as a result of not having either of those two things, we will quickly dive into the pool of heretical practice and, and teaching. Paul, he ends his letter here with some final instructions. And he gives encouragement. So I, I, I want this to be encouraging to you this morning. I know, um, yeah, church discipline is not a fun thing to talk about, as we've already established. But in verse 14, he, he starts to give some encouragement here at the very end. And, he, and again, this is something that I, I think as this letter would go out, it would end up into the, the ears and the minds of the people of the churches of Crete. And I think this is to be read publicly. So in verse 14, look, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. He reminds them, again, to devote themselves to good works and then gives them definition of what that is. It's to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Christians should be helpful people. We should be helpful people, but not simply based upon physical need, but also the spiritual need that is there. Whenever it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, think about that for a second. It's not just fruits of the hands or fruits of, of the feet, fruits of the spirit. There, there's something spiritual involved with doing those things that is not simply physical. Yes, it will display itself physically, but it's not just simply physical. Those urgent needs, those urgent, urgent things should not take place of the most important things. 
And what is the most important thing that we need to deal with and we need to be right with? And that is we need to have a right relationship with God. We need to deal with these things. And I think we can think of them as urgent. If, there, if there's a sinful thing that's happening in our life or in somebody else's life, that's an urgent thing. So the message of the gospel, it needs to get to people. People need to hear the gospel. People need to understand what the gospel is and what the, what the fruitfulness of the gospel looks like. And this is why Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Meeting only momentary needs or physical needs without a plan to bring the gospel into the situation or into the need of the person's life, this is the definition of unfruitful ministry. His final words that he gives here in verse 15 involves a couple of points that I want to remind you of and encourage you with. Look at verse 15. And all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. He says, those who love us. I believe Paul is giving reference back to real believers. The real believers of Crete. Not the Cretans, but the Christians. These are the people who love to hear the words of Paul. They love to hear these, these things that are even painful and uncomfortable. These are the people who love to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. And these are the ones that have, have been established by him as leaders. So as Titus is establishing elders and these in these churches that are being raised up to be leaders. These are ones that love, love Paul because they love Christ. Now Paul uses the Greek word phileo, as you, all you Greek experts in the room, you know what that word is, it describes love. Now Paul uses that Greek word phileo only twice in all of his writings, only twice does he use that word to describe love, phileo. He uses it here, then he also uses it in, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, so listen to this, if anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The real follower of Jesus will follow what has been instructed from the Lord because they have love for the Lord. Why should you do good things? Because you love him. Not because you, you need to do good things in order to love him. That, that's not how it works. That's backwards. And the gospel teaches us that and reminds us of that, is that I don't need to do good works to be loved by God because I couldn't do anything good enough to be loved by God. It is all because of his grace. So whenever he says, grace be with you all, that, that should be comforting to us as we talk about and deal with hard things like church discipline. We should extend grace. We should show grace. And so the final statement that Paul gives, it's a reminder of, of what binds the capital C, the universal church together, and also what binds the local church together, and that is grace. Grace is what binds us together. It is the grace of Jesus Christ alone that saves us, and it is the grace of the Holy Spirit that binds us together as a body, universally and locally. For us to accurately proclaim the grace of the gospel, we cannot 
cannot neglect dealing with our sin, nor can we ignore or neglect or, or push off someone else's sin who claims to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We're going to move into a time of communion this morning. We're going to move into a time where we observe an example of the gospel that has come to us by way of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us about 2,000 years ago where he laid down his life, taking upon our sin and putting into our account his righteousness. As we observe the, the taking of the cup and the taking of the bread, they represent the blood and the body of Christ that was broken for you, it was given for you, that would redeem you, buy you back from the, the enslavement of sin into a new relationship with God. I would ask you, as I'm going to ask our deacons to go ahead and come and prepare things, I would ask you just to spend a few moments right now, just in where you are, praying, asking God to enlighten your mind and heart of what we've heard, of what we've heard all throughout Titus, but also specifically about what we've heard today. And in just a few moments, we will dismiss these aisles and ask you to go back through the, the middle aisle, back to your seat, and we'll partake all together. So would you please pray for just a moment?